He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Joined by the rest of the Munson's. Want to give them a wide berth. He's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> and talk about what's going on in their worlds. Case, you're up. You know, lately I've been feeling a little self-conscious because I learned something. You guys, I just don't understand these rules anymore. Apparently, when you're sending text messages, you're not supposed to finish with any sort of punctuation. It makes you come off rude. Since I've learned that, I'm nervous that people are envisioning me like Eastwood on his porch yelling at people to get out of his yard. (laughs) If you're sending text messages, stop punctuating at the end. Warren. I'd like to use this time to say that for the first time in 20 years, I'm back into the NBA. (laughs) Hell yeah. With the Rockets securing the number two pick behind Kyle's Pistons at number one. And the Rockets having like complete up-and-comers like i'm i'm ready to get reinvested in the nba i lost interest when yao ming got signed and (laughs) i'm back i'm back houston he's back baby (laughs) i'm hoping the pistons pull a darko milichick once again and (laughs) take somebody who never plays (laughs) i also have been watching a lot of the nba more than years past because there's no lebron no Warriors. I mean, that's the reason why I didn't really watch a lot of the playoffs in the years past, just because it was the same two or three teams who were always in it. But not this year. It's it's, it's exciting. There's four teams in it that have haven't won in a while. So um, some haven't won at all. So it's pretty exciting. Watched the U.S. Open this past weekend. Played a lot of golf myself. Just kind of enjoying enjoying the summertime and the warm weather. So things are good. Fat ass, probably a great golfer. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> James. Uh, I've been going to local town hall meetings, getting in fights over critical race theory. (laughs) I don't know what that shit is, but I know I love America, and these colors don't run. You fucking snowflake. Yeah. (laughs) On my end, Warren hit one of the two topics I want to hit. The other one is, I'm in the middle of moving back to Indiana, and I'm excited. This will be the weekend before this drops, but it, it marks an important moment in that F9 is hitting movie theaters. And I'm hoping I can convince James to meet me at a movie theater in the city of Indianapolis. That could be hard. James doesn't like me. We don't like really hanging out. But I feel like the trivia master himself, we got to go see F9 together. I don't disagree. Absolutely. I may have to drive over. You should. You should. (laughs) I may have to go 150 all the way over. (laughs) I drive all the way over and back in uh, five hours, including the movie. (laughs) You do have the same hair as Vin Diesel to pull this off, so you're halfway there. Hey, speaking of uh, people who aren't turds, though, we are lucky enough to pull Dan Craig for at least a couple minutes tonight for this episode. And Dan, welcome, man. Hey, hey. Welcome. Thanks for accommodating me. I appreciate it. Stepping away from yelling at uh, small children, and we appreciate you to be here. It's great. Hey, the kids aren't even here yet. They're already (laughs) yelling, so. (laughs) Well, for those who don't know Dan Craig and didn't listen to two previous episodes, 
Chris O'Dowd and Tim Roth. Dan is a high school English and film teacher and has the dubious distinction of knowing Craig Case for the past 20 years. And we had a different guest lined up and his life was crazy. And so we reached out to Dan and said, hey, could you take some time away from your camp life to be with us? And he is at least going to spend a little bit of time. Not going to commit to him being here the entire episode, but we'll lean on his wisdom as long as we can. Wish. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. First three-time guest. This yeah, is true. Dude. Really? That's awesome. And you're going to be the first four-time guest, too, which is um, awesome. everyone else is going to hate us. Well, maybe hate you. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? I'm okay with that. I can live with that. All right. Well, let's let's utilize Dan's time wisely. Let's dig in to some, uh, some legit segments here. We'll start with some birthdays for July 1st. First off, we have Liv Tyler, Steven Tyler's daughter, Empire Records, Lord of the Rings, Armageddon, and Jersey Girl. How old is Liv Tyler? Hmm. 45. 41. Ooh. Give me uh, 40. 43? 46. 44. Yes. Kyle got in Ow. there with 43. Nice. And we peppered the strike zone on that one, though. Yep, that's true. Number two, Dan Aykroyd, SNL, Ghostbusters, Coneheads, Blues Brothers, and Caddyshack 2. 63. 66. Give me 70. Give me, I'm going to go low, 61. I'm going high, 72. 69. Damn. Oh, nice. <laughs> and last but not least, we got Miss Pamela Anderson. In Baywatch, <laughs> Scary Movie 3, the camcorder video with Tommy Lee on the boat, and barbed wire. <laughs> did that video not have a title like Midnight in Paris did? No, I think it's no, just called one. Boat Movie, Tommy Lee's 10-inch hog. <laughs> <laughs> well, so on theme for our actor today. Holy moly, let's go. I'm going to go 53. I'm going to say uh, she will always be 24 in my mind. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Forever 24. I'm going to give it an inch for every one of uh, Tommy Lee's dong inches, so 48. Uh, disgusting. Ugh, I don't want to talk about it anymore. <laughs> James is jealous. <laughs> James, you better get used to me talking about penis because Defoe's dong is going to be a huge topic of mine the rest of this episode, so be prepared. <laughs> How he- Not as big as Tommy's. Pamela Anderson is 54. Somebody had 53, so we're going to count that one. Oh, that was me. There you go, Riggs. Oh, nice. nice. Good job. Other birthdays, Alan Ruck, Andre, Andre Brower, and our letter Kenny bro, Jared Kiso. Yes! Oh, nice. Love that. That is it. Five actors thrown under the wheel from our big old mega list. They were Winona Ryder, the very punny Winona on our Instagram, Bill Nye, or Bill Nye, depending on your proclivity, Elijah Wood, Barry Shabaka Henley, and none of that really matters because they were not selected. The wheel chose Willem Dafoe, or William Dafoe, depending on, I guess, how early you're looking at his career. Willem has about 140 credits, almost entirely filmed, so very cinema. He doesn't really have any recurring characters. He hasn't done much TV. Done some shorts, a few video games, but lots and lots of movies, so we like that. Um, Before we dig into his work, we'll get into the trivia. James. So, Dan, this is all old news for you. Uh, These are... Two truths and a lie. One of these is going to be a lie that is a fact about a member of the cast of the Fast and Furious franchise. You guys got to figure out which one. Here we go. Got it. Willem Dafoe, fact number one, he's acted in six movies that were nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. Fact number two, he's been nominated for two Razzie Awards, but has never won. Fact number three, 
He created a video for film class in high school that was so poorly received, he got expelled. <laughs> hmm. I think three is the lie. And I think that is Paul Walker. I think two's the lie, but I've been on a ludicrous binge for the last two weeks on our serious rabbit hole. So he's the <laughs> only person from Fast and Furious I could think about. But one of those two Razzies was actually for one of his music videos to get back. <laughs> you should not dog get back. Like Ludacris is music, a video genius. Is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Figured it wasn't critically received well. I know the fans loved it. Feels like a midget is hanging from my necklace and it's actually a midget. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> so what was number one again? That was six best. He was acted in six movies that were nominated for Best Picture Oscar. That one's it, and it was definitely Charlie Theron. <laughs> That's Our a good girl. guess. That's a damn good guess. James, what was the third one again? Created a video for a film class in high school that was so poorly received, he got expelled. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that, that's actually Adrian Mosey. He was the pianist in the upcoming F9, 100%. <laughs> well, Kyle nailed it. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say one as well, so you beat me to it. But I say the actress is Helen Mirren. Ooh. Who's the star there? Those are all good guesses, especially the two actresses that you named, because I have used them probably the most of any of the cast members from Fast and the Furious because they have very interesting lives. But fact number one, acted in six movies that were nominated for Best Picture, is true. Platoon, Mississippi Burning, Born on the Fourth of July, The English Patient, which was a snore, <laughs> The Aviator, and The Grand Budapest Hotel. Of those, only Platoon and The English Patient, which again was a snore, are winners in the category. <laughs> fact number two, also true. He's been nominated for two Razzie Awards, but has never won. Uh, he actually almost was nominated for a third, which was in Triple X, Vin Diesel movie, but he didn't make the final cut. He was nominated for Worst Supporting Actor for his role in Speed 2 Cruise Control, which I know mm -hmm. is a very uh, beloved movie on this podcast, and Worst Actor at 1994 for Body of Evidence. Oh, had to be that one. <laughs> a little erotic thriller, baby. Let's go. And fact number three, created a video in film class in high school that was so poorly received he got expelled. Also true. All three were true. I just really wanted to highlight the fact that <laughs> despite how shitty of actors I think are in Fast and Furious, uh, Willem Dafoe's been nominated more for Razzie Awards than any of them. So I was pretty blown away by that fact. <laughs> but when it comes to his film class, Willem Dafoe, is, as we'll get into it, is no stranger to uh, eccentric art. And what he did was he interviewed three students one who was a nudist, one who was a Satanist, and one who was just a stoner. And he interviewed the nudist while naked on the toilet. He interviewed the Satanist while looking through his pornography collection. And he interviewed the stoner while talking about all the people in school he sold drugs to. Narc. And while he was editing this to before it was even submitted, his teacher was looking through the unedited footage and first thought it was porn that he was watching and immediately <laughs> reported him and he was immediately expelled by the principal. So that's a tough way to end your high school career. But yeah, he got expelled for a really poorly done project. It was really just the first cut of Pasolini. <laughs> <laughs> He's been an outside-the-box thinker for a long time. All right. Case snapshot box office history. What do we got for Willem? First of all, brilliant move by him to go to Willem 
because he is the one of the easiest people we've looked at to find on the different streaming devices. But William actually measures up a lot better than I thought he was going to. He's able to pull behind a really strong fan and critic ranking, as well as he is part of the third best return on investment of all the movies we've looked at. Does anybody know what movie they think that is? The Lighthouse. Okay, we got The Lighthouse. I was going to say Platoon. Okay, Platoon. Definitely not Boondock Saints. <laughs> Definitely no. not Boondock Saints. John Wick. Dan, you got a guess? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say Clear and Present Danger. Co-starring with Keith David, Rigby gets it right. That movie pulled in $139 million against a $6 million budget, which is pretty wild. While he's had quite a few bomberoos, those uh, are all heavily outweighed by substantial box office success. Again, Platoon was number one, but on the other side of that, we, uh, there's actually two movies that stood out as massive turds, I guess we'll call them. Number one is his involvement in Triple uh, X, State of the Union, uh, the sequel starring Ice Cube. That gem lost the studio $42 million, which is the fifth most on our list. However, the really surprising box office flop is Boondock Saints. That movie, uh, world grossed 30000 Yes, 30000 against a $6 million budget. And it lost the studio, well, basically everything. Yep. And what was really surprising about that is only in the theaters for one week. And it was only released on five screens, which is really odd for a $6 million budgeted movie. But right before they released it, the Columbine Massacre took place, mm-hmm. and they dressed very similar to the main characters in the Boondock Saints, and so they cut it down to only five screens for one week. The movie ended up becoming a cult classic because he sold the rights to Blockbuster Video. Once it went to Blockbuster Video, and honestly just word of mouth is where the entire amount of money that movie has ever made, which ended up being like $55 million, yeah. was all blockbuster video movie sales. It made a Nissan Rogue's worth of money in theaters. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of it was in blockbuster video. 55 mil from college frat bros. Yeah, mm-hmm. 100%. <laughs> yep. Anything else, Case? Overall, you know, he's 18th in Star Meter, 9th and 13th in Critic and Fan Ranking, respectively, 12th and 3rd in two different box office metrics, and that puts him 10th overall on our list. Pretty good. Of almost 40. 10 of 39. A lot better than I thought it was going to be. I mean, he's in a lot of well-known and pretty decent movies throughout his career, so it doesn't surprise me too much. Mm -hmm. All right, thanks, Case. You bet. All right, before we get into first feature film, which is very early in his career, just a few other nuggets that James didn't hit on. First off, he's born in Wisconsin, so he's a Midwest guy. He's got seven brothers and sisters. He comes from a big family, and as Case had mentioned, Willem versus William kind of took on Willem as his stage name, and I think it was a good first brand overall. He's the only Willem I know of. Mm-hmm. Early on, he started a relationship and got married to director Elizabeth LeCompte in 1977, and they stayed together until 2004, had a son in 82. So he's got a son who is older than most of us on this podcast. But his first real movie role was in 1980. He was in a movie called Heaven's Gate, which is a very long movie. He plays a character named Willie, but he is technically uncredited, and I assume some of you saw the interviews where he talked about that. He was actually fired from his first role because he laughed at a dirty joke, and the director told him to leave the set. 
and that was all she wrote for his first role. Wow. Another part of it that was funny is he got the role because he lied about being bilingual. Mm-hmm. That he spoke Dutch. <laughs> yeah, and he goes, I didn't speak Dutch. I had a friend who spoke Dutch right out phonetically my lines I was supposed to memorize. And so they thought I spoke Dutch. And then when I got on set, they learned instantly I didn't. <laughs> it's like, so I was already on kind of like, you know, my last thread there. And then, then it was pretty easy for them to cut me. And he seems to get asked about it every t- interview I've seen with him. So <laughs> he seems pretty open with it. He knows it's coming. But yeah, he got fired from his first ever movie, which uh, he's come, you know, it's come a long way since then. But early on in his career, he was one of the original founders of the Wooster Group. It's an experimental theater group off-Broadway. He was a member for 27 years. And knowing how unique the Wooster Group is and doing theater very different than the mainstream kind of, I think, says a lot about the type of career he took on as an actor and why he has taken on some very odd roles with some of Hollywood's weirdest and most uh, controversial directors over the years. Mm -hmm. But his first feature film, what we're going to call it, was his second role ever, and that was in The Loveless in 1981. And Dan, as our guest Munson, will be taking my review, which in this case would have been first feature film. So we at least have Dan for a little bit, and he's going to talk about The Loveless. First of all, thank you for giving me this film. (laughs) (laughs) There is... A ton of other stuff. I was like, okay, what about what am I gonna do? We're gonna do Shadow of the Vampire, maybe <laughs> Present Danger, Lighthouse, you know, any of these. <laughs> I had never heard of this movie until prepping for this. Have you all seen it or no? Yes, I have. I haven't. I wish I did. Do yourself a favor. It's only eighty-five minutes long, okay? so carve out a little bit of time. Okay? I'm gonna start okay, with the tagline okay, for the Loveless: Muscles clad in black leather. Incest and murder. That's the tagline. <laughs> did that rhyme? It did not rhyme. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like our Saturday night. Sounds like Luda lyric. <laughs> kind of does. <laughs> the next piece I'm going to share with you, right? On the IMDb page, if you're searching for this movie, first keyword you want to search for is brief male full frontal nudity. Accurate. Because that's the first thing that pops up right, with this film. Plotline. Trouble ensues when a motorcycle gang stops in a small southern town while heading to the races at Daytona. Catherine Bigelow's first directorial film. Future Academy Award winning Best Director, Catherine Bigelow, her first credited feature film. (laughs) Which she directed with a guy named Monty Montgomery, who I wish I could share more information about him, but I cannot. (laughs) It stars Willem Dafoe as Vance, a for like a, a biker, okay, for lack of a better word. And Willem Dafoe takes a liking to a young woman, and it takes a serious dark turn after that. Mm-hmm. I mean, would you agree? Yes. It goes from relatively harmless to what the fuck just happened? Yeah, yeah at the end of this. <laughs> I would go ahead. I would I would do it. Do it. You do it, Dan. I don't, I don't want to take away your... Save me 85 minutes, bro. She kills her father who abused her for years. That's kind of like the end of the movie. Wait, is this Charlize Theron? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Craig, I was just going to say that. <laughs> it's a bad movie. It's not good. It's not good. The real kicker, after she kills her father, she kills herself. Mm. Sounds like a comedy. 
it's uh, <laughs> it's a delightful romp. I read a review from the New York Times from 1984, and the woman said it is it is a pathetic homage to the 1950s, and I think that sums it up really well. Yeah, I, I think I read that same review. They, she was trying, Catherine and company. You're tearing me apart, Lisa. <laughs> yeah. Was this the last time Defoe and Bigelow worked together? I think so. Yeah, uh, he would have been so great in Point Break. Yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, he'd he'd be great. That's that's unfortunate. Yeah, and I don't know if he definitely not my favorite Willem Dafoe role. That's for sure. You got to start somewhere. That's that's true. <laughs> it's interesting though. You know what I mean, like he's not he's not bad. He's not great, but you could see like little pieces of what he does in Wild at Heart, or even what he's doing in in Speed Two. In some of this movie, mm-hmm. in some of this performance. I'm sure Speed 2 would have been better if he showed some of those other parts and would have shown his dick. <laughs> I was about to say, this This was also a prelude to a lot of what Willem Dafoe's career is. You get the brief male nudity is Willem Dafoe getting out of bed Ugh. and you going, oh, Willem. Oh, uh, good for you, man. So let's just get good to the point you. here. Do you got Willem Dafoe beat? Does he got you beat? What's this package looking like? <laughs> Let's get to the review of Antichrist later, and I'll, I'll frame it up for you. Okay, cool. So jump in right away. Like, let's build up to that. <laughs> let's, let's milk this, James. We can't just give away the, the dick information right away. Come on now. Comple- completely fair. My apologies. Have some patience. <laughs> That's the loveless. Appreciate you, Dan. Thanks for stepping in and tackling first feature. That is the first of two straight biker roles for Willem, because he was also in Streets of Fire in 84 as Raven. I don't know how this happened, but that was one of the most watched movies at my house when I was growing up. I would be willing to bet that I saw that movie at least 15 times by the time I was 15 years old. <laughs> and re-watching it for this podcast, my mom and dad went to the same school as uh, James's mom and dad when determining what movies were appropriate. <laughs> For, uh, for kids to watch, but I remembered enjoying it, and I thought it was a good movie, and then I really enjoyed it again when I watched it, and so I did a little deep dive. But first, did you have to rewind the VHS before you watched it? <laughs> no. Or... Well, you rewind it as soon as you're done watching it, so the next oh. person just automatically <laughs> yeah. can watch it. Oh, you were considerate back in the day. That's good. Be kind, Pardon. rewind. That's what I was going to say, Craig. It, it, I think you're just a victim of the VHS time period, where like we only had 10 movies to choose from, so like I had to watch Cry Baby with Johnny Depp like a thousand times because we had 10 VHSs. So <laughs> there was no choice but that. It was like either that or The Lion King again. Something along those lines. Walter Hill was, he was involved with this movie. He's directing the new Defoe and Christoph Waltz movie. Oh, oh really? Okay. Yeah. Let's go. It'll be a good one then. Was he a better biker in this one than The Loveless? <laughs> I didn't watch The Loveless, but I would imagine he is, yeah. 85. He learns to counterfeit some money and to live and die in L.A. as a character, Eric. Good first look as uh, a villain for Defoe. He's really creepy in it. Kills a lot of people. The movies I've always thought overrated. Willem Defoe's death is kind of, it's kind of lame how he dies for being such a good villain. But good little 80s action thriller that mm-hmm. people, people still like. But I've always not, I mean, I've, I've always thought it was kind of a little overrated. Well, he does die a lot, his characters in movies. So I'm surprised James didn't mention that because he's usually really good about pointing out actors who die a lot in movies. I can tell you he's died 28 times. I have that fact ready to roll. There we go. (laughs) He knows the website. Yep. 86, Platoon. We mentioned it. He played Sergeant Elias in a Keith David crossover. And he got his Oscar nom for Best Supporting Actor. Got an Independent Spirit Award nom for Best Lead. I mean, big, big big-time role. Opened a lot of doors for him. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of death 
scenes. His death in this movie is probably the one of the most famous in movie history, just because. No question. The iconic shot where he's like pointing up at the sky, like trying to get trying to get the attention of the helicopter, and the helicopter just is ignoring him while he's getting shot in the back by fifty Viet Cong soldiers. It's hard to watch that scene after watching Tropic Thunder. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, man. <laughs> you said Tug Speedman, so there you go. Yep. Um, Willem Dafoe actually got typhoid fever during filming of that and he was like on his deathbed for like 24 hours because they didn't know what it was and that's when they realized that filming on location is probably not a great idea when you're filming in a uh, a movie that took place in the jungle <laughs> yeah very method there just dropped him off in the middle of the, yep. the jungle and said figure it out boys for two weeks yeah yeah <laughs> figure it out figure it out gentlemen <laughs> Yeah, and the scene where he gives Charlie Sheen's character the huge bong of weed is great in Platoon. It's a classic. I can't believe it's pretty much what Tropic Thunder is about. That was shocking to me to learn. Mm-hmm. It's like the filming was so shitty that everyone almost died while filming it. But they made a great movie out of it. Go and, it. and Apocalypse Now, right? Because Martin Sheen had like three heart attacks while filming that movie. And somehow they, they did. Somehow they still got it done. Yeah. So two years later... Again, Platoon opened a lot of doors for him, right? Got, he got his first Oscar nom, which he speaks very highly of. He's like, that was a great moment for my career. And he got a call from some little short guy with big eyebrows named Martin Scorsese. Well, they called his, his agent. And Scorsese recruited him to be Jesus in The Last Temptation of Christ, a movie that turned out to be a lot more controversial than I think any of them planned for. You ever heard of him? <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently he asked his agent, oh, like, that's interesting. What role? And his agent's like, fucking Jesus, you dummy. You know, like, come on. The famous guy. <laughs> I've got another uh, Willem Dafoe dick story for you guys um, from this one, from an interview that I saw. So apparently during the crucifixion scene, which, again, I don't know if anybody out listening knows about the Jesus story, but it's kind of big for the whole origin tale. <laughs> But he's, he's hanging up there for hours at a time, and he's naked, so he's got his junk tucked underneath his legs, so he's like silence of the lambing it for hours upon hours. <laughs> and apparently at one point, Willem's big old dong flopped out, and he can't do anything. His hands are, you know, busy. And apparently no one wanted to do anything about it, and some nice assistant came through and stuffed his cock back between his legs for him so they could continue the scene. And that is another entry into Willem Dafoe's dick tales that I'm happy to bring to this episode. What kind of method acting bullshit is that? Bro, put your hands down. You're not actually being crucified. Just yeah. You can't. Adjust your junk. You're fine. Like You're yeah. not actually dying yeah. up there. So I haven't seen Last Temptation. Has anybody in Question two, um, is his portrayal of Jesus good? I wasn't around when Jesus got crucified, so I couldn't tell you. (laughs) How does it compare to other portrayals? I haven't watched any of them because it's depressing. I don't want to watch it. Yeah. Spoiler alert. uh, He dies. (laughs) A horrible death. You know, I remember it being really controversial, but it was done pretty well, and the acting was good enough that... That kind of burned off, and the critical reviews pushed that movie forward, and, and it became more popular. The same year, he's in Mississippi Burning, one of those Best Picture-nominated films, in a little bit more of a what he would call kind of a tame, boring role alongside Gene Hackman. That's a great movie. Yeah, movie rocks. Yeah, I watched it in high school and mm-hmm. uh, as a part of a speech class, and it, it stuck with you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's great in this movie because you kind of don't like him. You just You kind of just want... Hackman's character to take over and, and he's kind of fighting against Hackman's character and then by the end of the movie 
you know, he really kind of turns around and handles that character really well. So big year for him playing the Jesus and then in an Oscar nominated film. So the year mm-hmm. of year, at least of my birth, it was a good year of film for Willem Dafoe. 89, so a year later, he's in a movie called Triumph of the Spirit. He plays Salamo, a Jewish boxer, in the first film that was given access to film at Auschwitz. Oh. They recreated some of the components of it, but yeah, he wow. it's, it's kind of a slower film. It's not until about halfway through that they realize, like, hey, he's a boxer, and this could maybe be his ticket out. But it's about the fucking Holocaust. And so, you, you again, just like the Jesus story, you know where this story's going. It's sad as hell. And But the fact that they filmed on site at Auschwitz and the first movie to do it makes it a pretty interesting watch. It's on Tubi. Any idea why he was picked to play that character like no that's idea. my same thing that's my same thing with Pasolini and we'll get to that but no. like he's not a very convincing boxer no clue all right it's a re- it's a really good question i mean he doesn't speak dutch he doesn't speak Hebrew. he's not jewish he doesn't speak <laughs> yeah. italian he doesn't <laughs> I, I get it <laughs> maybe for the same reason he got cast in the original heaven's gate movie is because they needed ethnic faces and that's why they picked him by ethnic they mean just not <laughs> classically handsome just weird looking Definitely a white guy. No, yep. we need a, it's, it's a fucking white guy. All right. Yep. But you know, not like the actual people he's supposed to be representing. Same year. He's in born on the 4th of July, which we mentioned earlier. Another one of those Oscar nominated films plays a character named Charlie. And then he follows up in 90 with his appearance in the David Lynch film, Wild at Heart. He plays Bobby Peru in definitely what I would call his one of his more visually iconic roles with those dentures looking crazy as hell. His teeth are fucking hideous in this movie. And he, he really does just have that, like, that classic, like, Defoe, sh- like, shitty smile. Just, like, wipe that shitty grin off your face. If I remember correctly, he's a hitman in the movie, right? I think so. He looks like somebody who's been freebasing for, like, 10 years. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. It's a weird movie, too. I mean, it's just David Lynch just being very strange and Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern together. It's it's a great cast, but um, I don't know. Yeah, for someone who's a just needed a creepy villain, I mean, I guess Defoe filled it, filled in the shoes pretty well here. Rocking those dentures, man. But if you turned out a David Lynch movie and it wasn't batshit crazy, you'd be disappointed, right? Yeah, true. No, you would. You would. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Man's a legend. Next year, he's in Crybaby. Uh, that movie that James apparently watched on DHS numerous times as a young young person. He played the hateful guard. Crybaby's a fucking bizarre movie. It's right when Johnny Depp was uh, reaching his movie star like level, and everyone's like, "Wow, this guy's handsome and charismatic." And then we started to learn he was a bit of an odd duck and took only odd roles. And Crybaby is bizarre. It's like pseudo musical kind of a play. You watch it now and it's hard to get through, but I've seen that movie, similar to what Craig had mentioned, like probably 15 times. And again, it was a victim of VHS availability. (laughs) And it's just another foray into the eccentric filmmakers that he's worked with. Like this is a John Waters movie who's one of the Mm -hmm. more... Oh, yeah. One of the more like unconventional directors in Hollywood history, I would say, just with the movies he's done. And this is this one's no different. It's a this one's a little more, I guess, I don't want to say realistic, but it's just less strange than Pink Flamingos or whatever. Even Hairspray, just like weird shit that John Waters has done. This kind of adds to it, but on a l- much lower level, I would say. He's attracted to that style. That's for sure. Absolutely. Well, he does, maybe, I don't know if it's his first, but definitely the most notoriable erotic thriller he had done yet in 92's Body of Evidence is Frank the Lawyer. His character was sleeping with Madonna and Julianne Moore in the same film. Good for him. 
Yeah, right? Well, or I don't know if Warren would say that because Warren, I think, had some comments about Madonna. Warren, you, you should watch the scene of them in this movie because she, I believe she ties his hands around, or ties his hands with a belt and puts hot candle wax on his chest, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I think, and we'll kind of see it, I don't know. This is a weird role for Defoe because he's not, he's like the guy who gets manipulated and not the, mm-hmm. he's not the one who's doing the manipulation, which is, I think we all sort of see the, the movies that we know Willem Defoe. I think we recognize him as that, his usual character. So it's a little different for him. Yep. To me, it just seems like a, the studio's answer to basic instinct. Yep. Before we move on. So what's he working with? Are we going to talk about this man's penis or what? You don't see it in this movie. It's, all right, all right. You just see a lot I'll of Madonna wait, and wait. Julianne Moore. I'll we'll wait. Kids, go to Google. God damn. <laughs> no, I want to hear it. I want to hear an honest assessment of Be this patient. Until we, until we get to the late 2000s, you're going to have to okay. wait another 15 years. All right, fair. All right, so Light Sleeper, 92, plays a character named John in a lead role. That's a good movie. I think we talked about it maybe in Sam Rockwell's, because I think it was one of Sam Rockwell's like first performances. He has a little cameo in it. That's right. I forgot it was a crossover. Great cast, and it's the first foray into the Paul Schrader world, which I think he's done. We'll get to him, but I think he's done like five or six movies with Paul Schrader now. Mm-hmm. Good movie. Recommend it. Working with some good directors. Yep. In 1992, Willem played the character Ray in the movie White Sands. And I know Dan Craig's a big fan of this one. My personal favorite of Willem Dafoe's films. Released in 1992, directed by Roger Donaldson of No Way Out fame. Another great movie. White Sands stars our boy Willem as mm, small town New Mexico sheriff Ray Dozell, who stumbles upon a dead body in the foothills outside his town on the dead body is five hundred thousand dollars in cash so he decides to pursue the money and follow it to its logical and as some critics might say illogical conclusion (laughs) the film also stars mary elizabeth mastrantonio samuel l jackson in an early performance a super cool performance by the way and mickey rourke in one of my personal favorite rourke roles movie does not get great reviews. Yeah. I'll be very honest about that. This was a personal choice for me to review this one. I rented this movie back in days when you could rent movies. That's the first <laughs> kind of movie it's a, that I saw of, you know, of this genre. The locations are really cool. It's set in and around White, White Sands National Monument. It's just a cool little thriller. There's also some great like small-time supporting roles like M. Emmett Walsh and Miguel Sandoval play like really small little parts. But they're so good. They just add like a little bit of color to it. It's just awesome. Uh, some of the reviews, like I said, not very positive. Let's get to Defoe uh, in this film. And it's cool to see him in a leading man role. I feel like up to this point, he hadn't really done a leading man role. Like I said, this comes in 92. Right. He's Oscar nominated for Platoon in 86. He does To Live and Die in L.A. before that. After that, he's doing Born on the Fourth of July. Uh, and so on. But 92, like, this is one of the first times, like, he becomes a leading man. And he's awesome. Right after this, he goes into clear and present danger. And, you know, as covered before, body of evidence. Yeah, ouch, but it is what it is. <laughs> Again, if you let this movie just kind of wash over you, okay, enjoy it. Okay, I think you're going to have a good time. And then 96, he's in The English Patient as Caravaggio. It sounds like James' favorite Oscar-nominated film of all time. I didn't think it was that bad, but No, it's slow. Yeah, the problem is this is still in that era where people thought, and by people, I mean production companies thought it was acceptable to have three-hour dramas. And, like, you could cut out a 
a good hour and a half from this movie and still tell the story the same way effectively. I don't hate on the story and how it's told other than the length. This would have been the second, his second best picture winner though, right? That he's involved in? I think so. But I don't care because we are right on the precipice of the review that we all came for. And oh, that's his yeah. lowest <laughs> critic score. Speed 2, Cruise Control, oh boy. 1997. Case has the honor of starting us down this path, and then we're going to see where it goes. You guys get it? Cruise <laughs> Control? <laughs> oh. oh, shit. <laughs> well, there is a lot to unpack here, and I know my fellow Munsons have a lot to discuss about this movie, so I'm going to try to be brief here. One of the best parts for me is that this movie for the last month has been on HBO all the time. And every time it's on, I feel like that scene in A Bug's Life where the bug is looking at the light and he just keeps flying towards it. And his, his bug buddy's just like, don't go it, don't go to the light. Every time I watch it, even though I know what the outcome is going to be and how I'm going to feel, but yet I still watch I've probably seen this movie 10 times in the last month and a half or so. So this, this movie has a critic ranking of four. Four, yes, four. Did you, did you cut off? Did you say 40? Out of 10? <laughs> I believe it's out of 100. Oh, shit. And then a fan ranking of 16%. Certainly does live up to that hype. This isn't a good movie, but it certainly is not the worst movie that any of us have had to watch. And this will sum up everything that I think is wrong with this movie in, in one premise. The only reason Sandra Bullock agreed to do this movie is so that the studio would greenlight her passion project, Hope Floats. Hope Floats, yeah. Accurate. Otherwise, she was going to pass on it like Keanu Reeves did. He got one sniff that fucking script, and he said, "I'm out. I'm out." And you know, there's there's three things that why I don't like this movie, and I think they're pretty simple. And then I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it over to you guys. <laughs> I think number one, they had a great opportunity to have a female hero in this, and that Sandra Bullock could have handled this movie easily on her own. I think she was at a point in her career, certainly, where she could have been the main draw. Two is that. This movie's not speed one. Mm -hmm. And as much as the fans, critics, and studio wanted it to be. And then the third thing that I think why I don't like this movie is it's it's just, you know, like I said, it's not speed one or the first speed. It's just too formulaic. And they tried to do everything they could do to plug and play characters and reactions and situations. You know, you got Sandra Bullock. She's the only thing that was the same. And then they changed from a bus to a boat. They changed from Keanu Reeves to Jason Patrick, who, by the way, this movie may have ended his leading role career. Uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that guy had as much charisma as a pool of splooge. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> a pool of splooge. Lots to unpack that. <laughs> yeah, there is. They, uh, you know, they changed from passengers trying to get to work to passengers on a vacation. I mean, they just tried to just plug and play, and it just wasn't great. Uh, and then the final one, you know, about that is they, you know, they tried to capture the same zany, maniacal villain, you know, who they had as a loose cannon and Dennis Hopper to Willem Dafoe. And they basically tried it to be the same type of character, which on paper, you know, seems like a good idea. But I mean, up until this point, Willem Dafoe has had some incredible villain performances. And it's like they told him, hey, try to be as much like Dennis Hopper as you can. It just didn't work. Those are the three reasons I didn't like this movie, and I certainly would love to hear why you guys fall on the same side as the critics and the fans. Oh, boy. I don't even know where to start. James was sleeping, so he he's, can't officially comment. I think we've, we've gone back and forth in the text chain about why I think this is the worst movie that 
I've seen for this podcast. That doesn't necessarily mean it is the worst. It's just the worst one. I haven't seen Hotel New Hampshire. I haven't seen Holy Matrimony and all that other stuff that you guys you see. Have book. you seen Cool World? No, no. <laughs> well, then, dude, like, hey, hey Rigby, before you, get, before you get going, I actually have a list of movies that I've watched for this podcast <laughs> that are worse than this Do movie. It. How big is the list? This this is just the ones that I could come up with looking at the actors. Don Verdeen, G-Force, Old Dogs, Tree of Life, Bad Company, Nurse Betty, The Con is On, 600 Miles, Three-Fourths of Danny Trejo's Filmography, Cool World, (laughs) Jupiter Ascending, Hotel New Hampshire. There's so many. These are just worse slash less enjoyable viewing experiences. (laughs) I just love that. I love love that you snuck in the Tree of Life. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, I recognize Tree of Life is a better movie, but I would much rather watch yeah. Speed 2 twice than watch that movie once. Well, you, you probably could in the duration it would take. Yeah, to exactly. Life, so. Exactly. Craig, you mentioned it. Sandra Bullock is extremely underused in this movie. Her, her, yes. her, her role is basically a damsel in distress. It's not even that. It's a bunch of like. She's Honey, exposition. Me. That's all she yeah. does. Like all of her lines are just like these puns that like, oh, I can't believe I just said like, it's like, doesn't come out natural. And I read that the first time she screened the final cut of the movie, she knew it was going to be a big bomb. So I thought that was kind of funny. The other thing is Willem Dafoe is not a good bad guy in this. Nope. Which is really disappointing because he is one of my favorite actors that we've covered on this podcast. And he's one of my favorite villains, like guys who plays villains in movies. Let's hear from Warren. I'm going to get his perspective. I am by no means am I saying that this movie is good. Mm. Like I would, I would say it is maybe a 10 or 15 oh. out of a hundred just because I at least laughed in this movie <laughs> and it brought enjoyment to me because of how shitty it is. You have to go in knowing that the movie sucks. And I get it going in being like, oh, man. Mm -hmm. And in the last 20, 30 minutes, like I was laughing my ass off. (laughs) The the whole boat thing is it's coming into the harbor. Everybody out there seems to be the most oblivious person in the world. The boat's like, boat's like, it's like 100 feet from them. And they're like, they can't hear it. They can't see it. It's like ridiculous. (laughs) It's like they think it's for like so far off. (laughs) <laughs> they're like oh we're we're 30 minutes away from hitting this oil vessel right. and they're like well the oil vessel's like oh i hope they see us <laughs> <laughs> and they're like well they're not moving that whole thing is hilarious as they're coming in and then as the boat just crashes into st martin's it just keeps going and going and going and that entire time as they're coming into the harbor, there's that one fucking like <laughs> Dutch, Dutch sailor. I was talking about the knots. They're, yeah, they're running over boats and they're like, boats are exploding. Like a sailboat with no gas on it explodes <laughs> under them. And he's like, seven knots, sir. We're in seven <laughs> knots. And they kill like 10 other people. And he's like, six knots. <laughs> They keep hitting shit over and over. And he's like, every single time it cuts back to him, he's like flung up against the wall. And he's like, three knots. He's he's like under a pile of rubble. And he's like, one knot. (laughs) (laughs) To Bourne's point, I think it would have been a really fun movie to watch with a group while drinking. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Willem Dafoe wasn't, he wasn't great, but he wasn't the reason this movie sucked. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to count it against him. The movie wasn't good, but it's, it's, it's fine. 
my big gripe with this is that it, it after watching this, it felt like everything that's wrong with Hollywood making unnecessary sequels, big yep. budget blockbuster yep. sequels. Absolutely. And this is like the perfect example of an unnecessary big budget blockbuster sequel. You know, a lot of times when we have got movies this bad, we always tell the audience to not watch. I think you should absolutely watch this, especially because you've got that great boat scene to look forward to that Warren was talking about. And here's a hint. If you really want to enjoy it and turn it up a notch, at the one hour and 40 minute mark, cue up, ludicrous, move, get out the way. (laughs) (laughs) Crush St. Martin's to Luda. And it ends at a perfect time when the boat runs into the bell and it finally stops. You slept through an energy drink on this one, James. Like this yeah, is yeah, but, but, yeah, but he's a me, Yeah, me, me being able to sleep through a movie is not an indicative it's not a negative thing of the movie. That's Dude, more representative of my shortcomings. A, a, hev- a heavy dose of taurine couldn't even get you through speed to cruise control. So <laughs> fucking A. All right, well let's let's move on. So over the next couple of years, 97 to 99, just a, a few things we'll note. He was did his first episode of The Simpsons, one of two in 97, did another one in 2014. And then he played a small role, was the brother slash the narrator in Affliction in 97 alongside Nick Nolte. Great movie and another good Paul Schrader collaboration with Defoe. That leads to probably the other really spicy uh, review will do. I don't know if it's going to be spicy, but uh, largest audience gap for Willem is the Boondock Saints, 1999. We talked about a little bit earlier in the trivia and box office section. James is going to dig into more detail. So I was really happy that I got this movie because this is a movie I will preference with that I I didn't like it when I was in high school. I loved it when I was in high school. <laughs> I am saying this movie was. I quoted it at parties. It was many of my away messages on AIM. Like, oh man, I'm so dark and deep because Boondock Saints quotes. Like this was a movie I absolutely loved. And so I was excited to review this movie for this podcast because this is a public service announcement to all of us who thought this movie was amazing. This movie is horrific. (laughs) It is so bad. That I'm embarrassed. Like I, I'm, you know, you look back on yourself when you're younger, going through those kind of awkward formative years, and like I look back and I'm embarrassed that I loved this movie so much. And all of my friends who who claim to have loved this movie, if you haven't watched this movie in the last decade, I promise you, you're gonna want to keep that shit to yourself because it's awful, man. I'll do the summary of the plot real quick here, and then my review is mostly going to be just talking with you guys about how if you. If you didn't come to that same realization yet, you should because you're on the wrong side of history. Here's the quick plot synopsis. It's essentially like Batman if Batman was poor. So it's uh, tired of crime overrunning the streets of Boston. Two twin brothers played by Sean Patrick Flannery and Norman Reedus of uh, Norman Reedus is of the Walking Dead fame. They're inspired by their faith to cleanse their hometown of Boston of evil. And uh, with their own brand of vigilante justice, they hunt down and kill notorious gangsters like mobsters and drug dealers. And they kind of become like folk heroes in the community where people are like, is this a bad thing that these guys are, they're taking the law into their own hands and killing people, but they're killing bad people. So like it's, that's the message they want to get across. I assure you this message does not come across. Willem Dafoe plays the FBI agent who is on their case and is 
smart and like five steps ahead of everyone else and is figuring out their case. All that aside, here are the quick positives. I do like how the story is told. They lead you up to an action scene. And then instead of showing you the action scene in real time, they kind of do a Tarantino playback where Willem Dafoe as the detective is explaining what happened and then you get to see it. I do think that's cool. Other thing, Dafoe leans into the campiness of his character. Mm-hmm. He's fun. Yeah, and, and, and I like that. I feel like the movie would have been better if they went full camp that way, uh, but no one else does that. And the one running bit that didn't age like pure ass like the rest of the movie <laughs> is Defoe ripping the Boston PD, that one cop for getting everything wrong at every single crime scene. Still funny when you watch it and he's like coming up with there's this one cop who thinks uh, is trying to like put the case together. And he is so wrong that every time Defoe gets there, he roasts him on how wrong he is and then puts a coffee order through him. <laughs> that is actually still very funny and still plays well. Crushed by some <laughs> huge freaking guy. Yeah, he's like, okay, so we got a, we got a, freaking, a huge freaking guy uh, theme here. And what else do we got? Like him roasting him is fantastic. The negatives are literally everything else, man. <laughs> it is homophobic and racist just for cheap laughs. Like that shit that made you laugh when you were 11 because you're like, oh, I said a bad word and it got a rise out of someone. Isn't that funny? That's like a half the jokes in this movie. I am firmly on the critic side after firmly being on the audience side. So I used to be at the 91 level like the audience. Couldn't be more onto the critic side, which is 28, which is a huge gap. It is almost impossible to get through at this point because of how poorly put together this movie is and how cringeworthy it is. The only thing that holds up about this movie is that wild documentary that was made about it. I love Defoe in this movie. His The way he, I think you said it best, he like leans into the campiness. Yep. His character is definitely homophobic for being a gay character. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that he even acknowledges in his interviews that it probably doesn't, that part doesn't age very well. But the flexibility he shows and the like the the interesting inflection he uses all over all throughout his lines and his line reading I think is really good. When he loses his mind outside of the house when he realizes they've sprayed all the blood down, like you're like, my dude came to set ready to work today. Yeah. Bravo. You know, he's so smart, he's got everything figured out. But when he can't figure something out and he breaks from his like cooler than ice kind of tone to like the fuck like i don't know what the fuck's going on (laughs) let's keep moving because we have 14 years until the next category so very busy 15 year window for willem starts off 2000s as donald in american psycho you're like huey lewis in the news (laughs) (laughs) i wanted him to be creepier in this movie He's a really straight-laced detective. The scene that he's with Christian Bale are great, but you kind of you're watching the movie and you kind of think he's going to have a role in something, but he never really that never really happens. Same year, he is in a cross another crossover with Danny Trejo in Animal Factory. He plays Earl, kind of like the uh, the guy who kind of runs things behind the behind the scenes. A little bit of a red from Shawshank Redemption, a nonviolent type, and he's okay in that movie. The big movie for him in 2000 was his role as Max in Shadow of the Vampire, which he got Oscar, Golden Globe, and SAG noms for Best Supporting Actor, and an Independent Spirit Award win in in the same category. He's the uh, only actor to ever be nominated for an Academy Award while portraying a vampire. That was almost one of my trivia facts. (laughs) Yeah, that one probably would have gave that one away pretty quickly. That's good. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Based on what Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it seems like a really interesting role, wearing a lot of makeup, 
playing a vampire in a silent film, it's definitely one. Uh, his next Oscar nom that, again, got him a lot of notoriety in the, out there. And then he followed it up with a comic book character as Norman Osborn, a.k.a. the Green Goblin, in 2002 Spider-Man, Sam Raimi's film. I'm going to care to guess that this is Rigby's favorite Marvel movie, and he can just go fuck himself. I was just going to say that. These are my favorites. I think Defoe is really good as a villain in this movie. I agree. He's just, yeah, he's got that maniacal behavior about him that that is, it's classic Defoe. Great casting on their part. I hate Toby, and I hate Kirsten Dunst. And James Franco. I love J.K. Simmons and, you know, that, but... I'm not going to care about the movie if the protagonist doesn't do anything. Sure, Defoe does play a a good goblin, but it's just, I just don't care. I don't care about the character, so there's nothing to play against him. I get the dislike of Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man. I think that, for sure, that makes a lot of sense. That mirror scene, when he's, I guess he was, Raimi gave him Jekyll and Hyde to prep for that scene. Oh, nice. He talks about in his interviews, like the almost the dancing element of that scene because of, they had to be so strategic with the camera placement to be able to film that and for him to go back and forth between maniacal goblin to, I guess, semi like decent human as Norman Osborn, who just, you know, wants to be a good scientist is, is a really interesting back and forth. And I liked that Defoe was playing his craziest self. I thought he was great in those roles. I also just have an issue. I, I mean, I know Defoe plays a, a villain in a lot of things, but he is just, he is not physically imposing at no, all. No, and, no, no. and like, I know he's a scientist in this. And so it's good that they doctor him up with his, you know, his little hovercraft thing and his pumpkin bombs and all that shit. But like, still, <laughs> <laughs> I just I don't know, man. Like I I could like you said the same thing about Tim Roth from his career. Yeah, yeah, he plays yeah exact exact same thing. He's five nine. That's like me fighting my mom. They're maniacal in like attitude, but not necessarily physically matching the uh, profile. He is a great like what Rami Malek is going to be in the upcoming Bond. Like that is Pete yeah. Willem Dafoe, which was what they were trying to do in Speed Two. They could never convey it though, because he's you know <laughs> they just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And so you know it's that's just how that's how I, I kind of that's a great point. Good point. Well, if you're listening and you hate or love these characters or somewhere in between, they will probably show up in the next Spider-Man movie later this year, allegedly. So we might be seeing uh, the Green Goblin at it again, at least for one or two scenes. Uh, Same year, he's in autofocus. It's John Carpenter, I think, in what Rigby has said, probably one of his favorite biopics. Yeah, it's awesome. The story's great. It's about Bob Crane. He was in Hogan's Heroes. He liked to videotape himself having sex with women. And Defoe plays John Carpenter, who is his his friend in the movie. And he's the one who introduces him to like videotape and erotica and stuff. It's an awesome movie. Paul Schrader directed it. Typical Defoe, creepy, homoerotic. It's classic Defoe if you've if you've come to like him over the years. So can't recommend it enough. I mean, nothing quite says little homoerotic Willem Dafoe like his role as Gil in Finding Nemo in 2003, his first of two appearances. (laughs) Quite the transition from John Carpenter in the porn side to a fish. He's got such an unsettling voice. That's range. Yeah, I mean, he was destined for voice work with how, like, gravelly and abrasive his voice is, so it was only a matter of time. 100%. And first of a couple appearances in the, the Finding Nemo universe there. 
2003 makes his appearance, first appearance in a video game in James Bond 007, Everything or Nothing. He plays a character in that, so that's pretty cool. First of three. Some more voice acting work there, and it looks like him. The character definitely looks like him, so it's in his likeness. Same year, he's in Once Upon a Time in Mexico as Barrio. Spider-Man 2, he makes a cameo, and then he plays his role as the blowhard German director Klaus in The Life Aquatic with Steve Sisu in 2004. First of four roles uh, in the Wes Anderson world. I enjoy Wes Anderson. I don't love him. I'm not, like, crazy about him. This movie is all right. Mm -hmm. And, like, his role as Klaus is entertaining. But of the Wes Anderson movies that he's in, this is definitely not my favorite. We'll get get to the favorite one later. 100%. I agree. Interesting character, though. And uh, and Willem looks back very fondly on that one. He he talks a lot about how he enjoyed playing that character. And it obviously very enjoys working with Wes, like many other directors, like Paul Schrader and others, and uh, Lars, which we'll get into in a moment, too. 2004, he's in The Aviator, and he also marries his new wife, the Italian actress, director, screenwriter, Giada Colagrande, still married today. 2005, he does his first movie with Lars von Trier's called Manderley, and we'll talk about another one here in a, a minute or so. We see Triple X State of the Union, as we mentioned earlier, General Decker, that Bomaruski, similar to Speed 2, a couple big budget blockbusters that did not go well. Inside Man in 2006, played Captain Darius. Great movie. Yep. Awesome movie. Yep. Good role, too. Yes, it was. And then 2007, he's in Mr. Bean's Holiday as Carson. He plays another blowhard filmmaker in kind of a funny role where uh, they basically like take over the Cannes Film Festival for a hot minute to film some scenes and that. And I've, I've seen some people use that meme quite a bit, too. And then Spider-Man 3, the one we don't really like to talk about. And then the big Lars von Trier film, Antichrist, the one that we mentioned very briefly on the Dakota fanning episode with Sam Phillips, who has talked about it. And also, Mark Yerke last time talked about Antichrist and said that we should have a suicide pact to all watch it together. And I don't think we did that. Uh-uh. And it's probably a good thing. Paid $3 to rent it because I was like, if there's ever a time to watch Antichrist, it's the Willem Dafoe episode. Hard no. You're on a list now, Kyle. The basic gist of the movie is he plays a, a th- like, like a therapist who his wife, their son, straight up like Eric Clapton's son, walks out a window, not great. And she's all torn up about it. He's trying to counsel her. They decide to go to a house out in the middle of the woods try to get her head straight. What ends up happening is batshit crazy ensues. And this is the funny part. So this is the funny part of the movie, not the uh, self-circumcision by the female. Oh, I thought that the toddler dying by a tragic death was the funny part. Oh, we're getting to the funny part. No, (laughs) we'll get to the funny part, but there's some self-circumcision. Good point, James. Good point. Didn't want to get that out there. They all gather around and watch the Serbian film, right? Uh, <laughs> it's not that bad. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's bad, but it's not that bad. The funny part of this film is that Lars von Trier felt that Willem Dafoe's penis was so distractingly large that they had to bring in a German porn star dick double for him to stand in wow. for these scenes. So just remember, the type of problems Willem Dafoe has to deal with as a, as a man is that his penis is too large. They had to bring in a German porn star's penis to make it seem more realistic. I German. There's a lot to unpack there. I got <laughs> think about it. I mean, I just, I mean <laughs> hit, 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 go, just Google, Google Willem Dafoe's dick. Like it, I don't know, it hangs, yeah. hangs down 50% further than his balls do. Like that's, that, that's <laughs> got right. some good hang down. Antichrist is a, is a very odd movie. Just be prepared if you decide to go into it. I don't know if I recommend it, but if you're into weird shit, 
it's definitely on the list of weird shit you could watch. I'll wait until James's reaction, and then we can move on. All right. He's got a huge hog. I'm shocked you guys waited this long to tell me. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like the foreshadowing was there the whole time. There was this other interview he was doing, and he got to this this section where they were asking him like random, very quick questions, and one of them was a guy asking him like, "What's your favorite noise?" And Willem was like, "Oh boy, I think it's the same noise you enjoy." And he's like, "Or maybe not," because he's like, "Oh, you might be gay," but he was implying it's women moaning that was his favorite noise. So I think Willem is just a freaky dude. Oh yeah, I think he's just a fucking freaky cat. He's a kinky cat. Fantastic Mr. Fox, another Wes Anderson film, 2009. That is one of the best Wes Anderson movies out there. There it is. It is so good. The whole thing is stop motion. It is hilarious. It's smart, awesome cast, obviously. His character is the rat in it is fantastic. He's pretty hilarious as the rat, right? Yeah, yeah. He's He's kind of like this very southern and he's got a switchblade and he's trying to do he's he's a bad guy and he's protecting these guys like apple cider farm mm. and he's like they pay me an apple cider <laughs> he's got like a switchblade he smokes cigarettes the movie is so good i recommend it for anybody makes a small appearance in the second boondock saints movie so if you're wondering um if they ever made a second one they did it's all saints day Probably don't recommend that one, too. It's been a while since I've seen it, but hey. But 2009 is really the year of the vampire for Willem Dafoe because he was in Daybreakers in 2009 as Lionel. But he was also in one of our favorites, Cirque de Freak, the vampire's assistant. Plays a vampire in that one as well in a crossover with Ken Watanabe. All about the vampire flicks in 2009. 2011, he's in a crossover with Natasha Lyonne in 444, Last Day on Earth. He plays Martin in The Hunter in 2011, a, a film about how he's chasing down the Tasmanian tiger, which I enjoy. He was really good in that movie. Definitely a more subtle type of role, mm-hmm. a conflicted hero. You're right with the movie. It's it's a very isolated movie where he's got to deal with a bunch of shit and a couple twists here or there. But if this movie was like two and a half hours long, it would suck. They did just enough to make you feel isolated and, you know, everything. So th- they did a good job. I actually, I really liked the ending. I thought it was, mm-hmm. yeah, I thought it was a just ending, even though, you know, you feel a certain, some people feel a certain way about it. I enjoyed the ending. I agree. And you get Sam Neill and I liked Sam Neill as an actor. Usually most things he's in is pretty good. John Carter, 2012, a crossover with Googs and Odd Thomas in 2013. Another Lars von Trier movie, Nymphomaniac Volume 2. We played L in 2013. And then in 2013 as well, he's in a weird short called The Smile Man, which is like right up Willem Dafoe's alley where he, he plays a character who cannot stop smiling. And so it just follows him for like... 15, 18 minutes in the weirdest, most awkward situations where he shouldn't be smiling. Um, <laughs> like getting the worst news of his life and smiling and the doctor being like, why are you smiling? Like, this is not a moment, a time to smile. And it's become a meme. I'm sure you guys have seen it in different places because it's just Willem Dafoe's weird ass face smiling constantly. So it's a good one to check. It's not available on YouTube. It's definitely one I would recommend. I don't know about if anybody else has seen it though. But 2014, he's in a crossover with PSH and a most wanted man. He plays Tommy and uh, another Wes Anderson film. He's in the Grand Budapest Hotel is Jopling. I like that one too. Agreed. That was a good one that year. And that takes us to 2014's largest credit gap, which Warren's going to cover, and that is Pasolini. Defoe plays Pier Paolo Pasolini. He is a, 
a writer, author, you know, writer, film, you know, filmographer, all that stuff in Italy. Kind of started going through schooling right after World War II. And, you know, for him, very controversial f- uh, figure at the time. I'm, I'm pretty sure, I can't remember at what point he became like openly gay, which, you know, at that time in a fascist state, not not like a great thing to you know <laughs> say, but uh, he ends up writing a movie, and uh, it was his last movie called Solo or the 120 Days of Sodom. Just terrible title, <laughs> but the the whole thing is really about it, it. Really is basic Sodom rape and everything over a 120 day period. I looked at what his other movies were, Pasolini's movies. The first two were normal normal-ish and then every other every other one had to do with like rape or incest or anything like that so Mm -hmm. he's kind of like the first john waters the movie made no like i didn't care i i fast forwarded through a lot of it um it was just it was a super super dull boring movie based off of what i read like they didn't even get his murder right at the end but I read critic reviews and they're like, they do a really good job of portraying him as a person. And I don't really think there's all that much of him like talking. It's not like Capote where you have all, like he was a very, very well-known character you know, globally. And you've got all this information about him and Defoe kind of looks like him. You know, I, I looked at a, a picture of what Pasolini looked like, but I just, man, this is a uh, do not watch, did not finish, will not watch again, like would watch Speed 2 for a day straight before trying to watch this entire thing once. So what was the gap? Yeah, 78 critic, 33 audience. Oh, that's a big one. Anybody who had anything bad to say about it, like I totally agree. It was just like, yeah, unbearably hard to drudge through. It was very slow. It was very, very slow. Just even the the dialogue and the interviews that he did were so dense that it, there was no like enjoyment whatsoever. Yeah. Like I, yeah. I felt like I should have just watched Solo instead. <laughs> <laughs> I get the movie is about like the last days of his life, which so he was killed before Solo was even released. Right. He was killed, yeah, because there was so much controversy that it was alleged that he was murdered because of that movie, which I think his case is still unsolved. If I'm not mistaken, it is an unsolved murder. Did you, was it like very theatrical of a role for Willem? Like a lot of monologues. I mean, there is a lot of like interviews where somebody will ask him a question in Italian or French or anything like that. Cause he's doing interviews based off his previous work and how he's got this like groundbreaking art coming out. Mm-hmm. And he just answers in a straight English accent, which yeah. was weird it was for weird. me. That was it, weird. He ends up doing that, and everybody else is one hundred percent Italian or you know French or anything in this movie. They don't subtitle the French or the Italian. He just no. answers. He answers, and you're like, oh, so that was what the question was, basically. It was rough, man. You you can't put yourselves in his shoes. Yeah. So there's no connection to an yeah. audience. It's just like, oh, this is what he might have been feeling before yeah. he was brutally murdered for yeah. potentially being gay, for potentially being anti-government, potentially doing all this controversial stuff. But it's just like. So it sounds like everybody's on the audience side of this critic app. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Well, Pasolini, there you go. 2014. Don't go watch it.
That's pass on it. Hard pass, which I did. Warren said, Kyle, you should spend your time watching Speed 2. I didn't watch Speed 2 again, but I did not. I watched five minutes, saw the Salo scenes, and I said, that's enough for me. I'm good. <laughs> Got it. I think I picked, picked up the gist. All right, so next couple of years, he's in John Wick, the first John Wick in 2014. He plays Marcus. He gets pretty brutally murdered. He's one of John Wick's friends in the film. Spoiler. But there's two others since now, so I don't really give a shit. But good movie, and his character definitely plays a role in the emotional arc of John Wick's character and why he goes off even farther than just dead puppy. Dude, of all the spoilers, that one. Right, exactly. <laughs> a couple years later, he's in, speaking of dogs, Doggy Dog. He plays Mad Dog. That's a lot of dogs. Alongside Nick Cage in a pretty violent movie. He does an insane amount of drugs in this movie, and he's like a paranoid, like, loose cannon. It's, it's an awesome movie. Are you talking about Nick Cage or Willem Dafoe? Oh, Dafoe. I'm sorry. Dafoe's character, Because yeah. <laughs> that sounds like Nick Cage. The plot of this is awesome. They're, they, He, Nick Cage, and this other guy are hired to kidnap a, a baby of another mobster. And the kidnapping goes wrong, so then they have like tons of people coming after him. It's really, really good. And it's really... The whole, the whole movie is like paranoid, and just Dafoe kind of portrays that perfectly. Because he's just like one loose cannon who's about to just shoot off at any minute. Um, and then finally... He is in A Family Man slash Headhunter's Calling, depending on where you find it. He plays a character named Ed alongside Allison Brie. And that gets us to 2017, our, our final category, and that is highest critic score. So maybe we're saving the best for last year. And that is, is his role in the Florida Project, and Rigby's got it. Yeah, it's definitely saving the best for last. I lucked out on this one. I had never seen it. I remember the the praise it got during Oscar season in 2017 came out during the same year that Three Billboards came out, Shape of Water, movies like that. The Florida Project is it's be it's described as a slice of life film. It's more of it's kind of a drama and it's kind of a dark comedy together, I would say. But it basically portrays the lives of so we all know Disney World as this majestic place where there's nice hotels and. Um, people go to to make their dreams come true, but the movie focuses on the poor, low income projects and cheap, low budget motels and the people living in them outside of Disney World. So it's an interesting contrast. Um, for example, in the movie, Willem Dafoe plays the manager of of a low budget motel that's called the Magic Castle, and there's a couple who accidentally books a stay there when they're trying to stay at the Magic Kingdom <laughs> in Orlando in uh, in Disney World. So it's interesting. It's told through the eyes of kids mainly, and mainly by a kid named Mooney, who is the daughter of a stripper who loses her job, who turns to prostitution to try to provide for for Mooney and and herself. But Willem Dafoe acts as because there's. These, all of these kids and these families are, are pretty broken. They live in this, in this shithole motel, um, can barely make their rent every month. Willem Dafoe is sort of the father figure to the children in the movie. And I thought his performance in this was fucking awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, re- it's a really depressing movie because you see, <laughs> you see these people doing horrible things. Like this, the mom is like bringing kids to the mom brings a, a She's a, she becomes a prostitute and she brings a client home and she like has sex with him while her kid is like in the bathtub. Like obviously the kid is oblivious to what's going on. A couple times. Scene happens a couple times. A couple times. Yes. Right. She brings a kid, she brings a kid with her to like hawk, like stolen perfume in a hotel parking lot, like solicit, you know, just really shady stuff. She steals these like 
Disney World bracelets from a client and like makes the daughter like sell them. It's just really, really fucked up. And obviously, like the saddest part is the kids are too young to even know what's going on. And they, but yet, like the, there's some really tender moments in it with like the kids just having their little playtime. Like what they think they're doing is like fun. They don't, they are completely oblivious to what's going on in the outside world. Yeah, this movie really, it was like a punch to the gut. I, it was awesome. Um, can't believe I had never seen it before. Uh, I believe Defoe got an Oscar nom for this movie. Well-deserved. Fantastic. Can't really say enough good things about it. Rigby, the uh, the point you made there at the end is what I think made the movie like something you could actually get through was kind of the ignorance the kids have to everything that's happening around them because they're just like playing and having fun and being <laughs> like rambunctious. And since it's from that perspective, like you as the adult are like, oh, this situation sucks. But you, you're seeing it from a you know, like an eight year old girl's perspective. And she's just like using sidewalk chalk. She doesn't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. It makes it like doable. One of the scenes is where he's painting the building, the manager, Willem Dafoe, and he sees this like pedophile come up to the kids and the kids Mm -hmm. obviously don't, the kids obviously don't know what's going on, but he knows right away what's going on. He like, he's basically like Chris Hansen and to catch a brother. He's like, why don't you come take a seat over here? Like, come on with me. (laughs) He's like, we'll get you that soda. Yeah. (laughs) He leads them away from the kids. And it's like a really, it's a really, powerful scene because he's like the father to them you know yep. and he, they're like the kids that he that he never had that he kind of they they bother him like kids probably would to a to a busy dad who's trying to you know just do his job but at the end of the day he's always there for them and so his, his role was great in this yeah, he spoke pretty fondly of that filming experience because he he likes the the director i think his name's sean baker and yeah, because he like ties in the fiction of the story with the realism of the situation. And like, they all stayed in the hotel during shoot. So like he was literally him and Sean are like next door neighbors, very immersive in the experience. And yeah, like he was trained by the guy who manages that particular hotel. So he was just doing what the manager does on a daily basis. I thought the girl who played Haley was fucking awesome. She was so good. Yep. That was her first acting role ever, I think. Yeah. It's a good one. 96 on Rotten Tomatoes or something? Yeah. Well That's deserved. Well deserved. Florida Project. Check it out. It's on Netflix. All right. So let's round it out. The last couple of years of his career, 2018, he plays Ryuk in Death Note, a uh, another Netflix movie that had, did not get received well because uh, others felt a lot of the fans of the anime felt that they took some uh, creative liberties and were not a huge fan of it. But he plays Ryuk, who is a really creepy character in that one, so he voices that. But then 2018 as well, he gets another Oscar nomination for Best Actor for his role as Vincent Van Gogh in At Eternity's Gate. He's good. He's he's very good in that role. Again, it's kind of aligns with his career playing like experimental, weird artist roles. You know, he learned how to paint and they took a little bit of a different approach for kind of telling the Vincent Van Gogh story. And it's a lot of like close-up shots and visuals. It's a cool little story, and he's very good. I mean, part of it is you do a biopic like that, you're already on the radar for a Best Actor nom. But definitely worth checking out. I would, I would recommend it if, if folks are interested, especially in, uh, in art and things like that. Last couple projects, though, we talked about him doing Marvel earlier as the Green Goblin. He ventures into the, the DC world as Volko and Aquaman. He's like a general. That's right, yeah. In the army. The training scenes on the beach with the two of them, which he reprises his role in Justice League most recently in 2020. And then uh, he wins an Independent Spirit Award for Best Supporting Actor for his role as Thomas in the Lighthouse alongside Rob Pattinson. This movie is 
fascinating. Yeah, uh, I liked it a lot. I don't know how I actually feel about it. I watched it six months ago, and I'd say I think about it on a weekly basis. Something (laughs) comes up in my life, and I think about it. I've read things about it. People tie parallels to mythology and stuff like that. Like, I get it, but it's just a straight-up fucking weird movie and it sticks with you it looks so normal it's such a nuts movie and it's super intense acting Mm -hmm. and in my in my opinion probably the best acting he's done i agree wow very theatrical i watched this movie today leading up to this and so i haven't shared my thoughts on what i actually think the story was with anyone i haven't even said them out loud so this is just my hot take on what i think this movie is about and if you guys have a different opinion, and I'm way off. Please let me know. So is Robert Pattinson losing his mind and talking to like uh, a figment of his imagination, or is he losing in his mind and like actually taking it out on like his coworker? Because I took it as the first part, like, and I still I could be so far off on what this movie's about that you guys would be like, no, you fucking idiot, it's this thing. Because I'm very much a, a months in and. With these super in-depth, like thought-provoking movies, I don't fully get them all the time. And so with this, I was like, I think it's a dude who's like losing his mind and beaten off by himself. Like, is that what's happening? I think it was a homoerotic thriller. That's what I felt like. I think there's a lot of themes to it, and I think that's kind of the point. It's kind of like Mulholland Drive. It's like you don't really like. There's so many themes, and that's that's what the director was trying to do. That you just you each person's kind of they make up their own mind about what it's about. You know. But they were definitely gay, Kyle. You're right. <laughs> yeah. One thing you know for a fact that that movie gets across is working at a lighthouse, you are desperately horny. Desperately <laughs> horny, bro. The horny levels are through the roof. There was not much to do back then, so I could imagine. All right. So last couple here. Uh, Motherless Brooklyn, another crossover with Googs in 2019. And then he was in Togo, which is a movie on Disney Plus that I really enjoyed. And his role is not complicated but i found the movie to be delightful and willem dafoe and um, i think her name julianne richardson both to be uh good chemistry movie with dogs that don't die so put that on your list james oh that's one not just don't die but hero dogs, <laughs> hero dogs, dogs. Heroes, yeah. yep. like iron will scores one to infinity and then in 2020 new york times did a list of the greatest american actors of the 21st century and he was ranked the number 18th greatest actor on that list. Ooh, I wonder where he'll fall in our scale. Ooh. That's 40 years of Willem Dafoe acting on the dot. 40 years on the dot. All right, we're going to use a list from uh, the British Film Institute. It's actually called Five Essential Performances. Ooh. Not exactly his best, but ones that the British Film Institute recognizes as ones that you need to see to probably understand Willem Dafoe's career. Platoon. Yep. Yep. Are they in order? Uh, no, there's no, not numerical order. The Lighthouse. Lighthouse is not on here. Oh, that means Boondock Saints is. Boondock Saints is not. Oh, okay. I like that you genuinely entertain that suggestion. <laughs> Florida Project. Florida Project is not on here. I wish it was, Kyle. All right, Shadow of the Vampire. Nope. Again, these are not these are not best. Spider-Man. Yes, yeah, Spider-Man. Yes, correct. I get that. Last Temptation of Christ. Yep. So that's three of five. We need two more. Pasolini. Nope. The one where you see his huge hog. Eternity's Gate. Nope. Antichrist? Antichrist. Nice job, Kyle. Oh, Jesus Christ. It is an experience. 
Uh, so we're missing one other one, huh? Um, Autofocus. No, I wish. Uh, American Psycho? Nope. Wild at Heart. It's got to be Wild at Heart, right? Or Wild at Heart. Yeah. Nice job. Ding, ding, Kyle. Let's get into the months and meter, the way this works. Each of us ranks the actor on a scale of 0 to 100 based on a variety of factors. They can include longevity, project choice, pop culture impact, acting range, awards footprint, any other talents they might have, personal life, comedic chops, box office success or lack thereof, and anything else that matters to us. So we'll start with Case. I've always been a fan of William Defoe, and it's probably because, like I said earlier, I watched Streets of Fire 15 times before the time I was 15 years old. <laughs> if you look at his career as a whole, he's he's really balanced really challenging roles with probably really easy roles. And, and I think that's a pretty smart way to, to build your career. He's balanced box office gambles with box office sure things. One of the things I'd be interested in, in is hearing him talk about how and why he picks certain roles. Because if you're as we're sitting here talking about all these different roles he's worked, it doesn't make any sense, but yet it works, right? One of the things I was trying to figure out was... How do I compare him? And and I don't know why, but the two performers that came to mind were Sam Rockwell and William Hurt. Like William Hurt, he takes on a lot of really tough and interesting roles and are really gambles. And like Rockwell, he has the ability to play a massive range of characters. So he falls somewhere between the two of those for me. In that light, I'm going to give him a 78. Warren? I would say one of the things that probably hurts Defoe the most, in my opinion, is he's not like in a humorous role. I think that is one of the glaring weaknesses in his filmography, and that's fine. There are some people who just don't have that. But for me, that is a huge part of movies and everything is being able to laugh, even taking a serious movie and offering up some kind of levity is... I think it's a very important thing. He's yeah, He's been around for a long time. 40 years is a hell of a long time to be doing something. So he's doing something right. I just like he some a lot of the movies that he picks to do, I won't ever watch. And like that says more about me, considering I think on Rotten Tomatoes, 48 of his 140 movies are certified fresh. So that's that's a 33% rate, which that's pretty good, all things considered. But out of those 48 that are fresh, I think I've seen maybe 10 or 12, and I wouldn't consider some of those even fresh. Mm-hmm. There's, a criti- there's a critical group that is always going to look at Defoe and just they're, they're going to gobble him up. And I, I, I get it. It just isn't exactly my thing. But again, like the lighthouse, what the hell? I like, I still, that movie is sitting with me and I just, I don't know. I don't know. And, and that says a lot about a, a movie that is so simple and so well just put together that like you could talk about that movie forever mm-hmm. and there, there's something to it. I don't know if I actually like the movie or not, but I'm <laughs> thinking about it. Same. But it's so it just, it's the movie, that movie is just fucking herpes and it sticks with you. But like, I think there's a lot of his movies that kind of fit in that same vibe for me. And he does have some awesome hits, you know, the platoons and everything like that. And the speed twos. But, um, you know, I, I think, I think, I think I'm going to end up giving him like a 79 because he is so 
like his name sticks out so much and everybody you see his face and you are like yes I know exactly what I'm getting from this guy. It's mm-hmm. maniacal. It's it's all this stuff, and like I do think that he can do more things in some with some other actors and get some small roles. You know, more like the the lighthouse. And he's what six six Oscar noms, or he was he four. was in movies. Yeah, well, he was yeah. in he was in six movies that were nominated. Right. That's that's saying a lot, mm-hmm. but he's got he's got a considerable noms himself. Just hasn't won anything. I don't know if he actually will, but you know, Scottie Pippen was a good player too. <laughs> that's I'm sticking with that score, seventy nine for me. Warren, to your point, what's his lightest movie? Finding Nemo. Yeah, and he's and he's like the gravelly curmudgeon. Yeah, James. It sounds like we're all well. At least the first three of us are going to be on the same page because uh, I agree with everything. Warren and Craig had just said there, only I am also going to give him the, uh, the big dick bonus of uh, a few points. <laughs> like, he really needs it. Yeah. Yeah, he really needs it. A few inches. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, a, it's a good looking dick, Peter. So uh, I'll give him uh, 82. <laughs> God. Watching a lot of his interviews and, and rewatching some films, I think he's a technician when it comes to acting. Mm-hmm. I enjoy listening to him in interviews and talking about the craft of acting, working with different directors with different styles. And it's clear he's not a prima donna. He comes onto set. He does whatever. He, pretty much, he's, I mean, if you're going to do The Lighthouse, you clearly don't care that much about your smell or your well-being or your sensibilities, right? Like, put me on a freaking island with terrible weather and we'll just film Rob for two months and just hope it works out well. So he's a technician by craft. He's an auteur. I think he's got great range. He plays a lot of different types of characters throughout his career. And he's done anything from the major blockbusters. Some made huge money, like Spider-Man, things like that. Others, like Speed 2, there were big old piles of dookie. I thought it was funny in an interview, he he joked about himself. He's not necessarily taking on comedic roles, but I think he can be, he's funnier offset when he said, you know, I'm like the boy next door if you live next door to a mausoleum. <laughs> I, I found that self-deprecation about how much of a ghoul he looks like in real life. It's kind of fun. funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in seeing other interviews too, like I, I saw an actor's roundtable with him, Tom Hanks, Gary Oldman, Sam Rockwell, James Franco, and John Boyega. And whenever he was talking, like, man, these dudes were locked in. Like, these are some of the best actors in the game. Like, Tom Hanks, you could just tell, is, like, fanboying as Willem Dafoe talks about the craft of acting. And I think that's really cool. So he takes a a little bit of a hit in a couple areas for me. But I'm going to give him, I think, my third highest score. I'm going to give him an 87. Nice. All right, Dan, guess Munson. His career is rock solid. A four-time Academy Award nominee. He's going to win it someday. He can go to heroic leading man roles, villainous roles. He can do it all. Okay, so he's getting a 90 in my book. Rigby, round us out. Yeah, so you guys hit all the good points. I love the fact that you mentioned that he doesn't have like comedic chops. That hurts him on his range. I mentioned that the movie Autofocus is one of my favorite roles of his. And there's a review from A.O. Scott of the New York Times who um, – and I think this quote kind of sums up Willem Dafoe's career. Uh, so just it's – a, it's a short one. So just just hang with me here. A.O. Scott said the film gets to you like a low-grade fever, a malaise with no known antidote. When it was over, I wasn't sure if I needed a drink, a shower, or a lifelong vow of chastity. I think Willem Dafoe has that effect in a lot of movies he's in. He is always up to be either the villain, either a creep, either he can even come off as like a rich 
you know, um, manipulative businessman like he has in or a, or um, a, just a chump bad guy like he was in To Live and Die in L.A. He's obviously been around for, you know, since the early 80s. So he's going on over 40 years. And the fact that he has worked with some of the more eccentric, but also some of the best directors, in my opinion, Scorsese, Paul Schrader. Oliver Stone, Spike Lee, Wes Anderson, David Cronenberg, John Waters. Like these guys are all, they've all sort of crafted their own legacy in Hollywood. And they, they all rely, they've all relied on Defoe to, to kind of carry their movies home. And I think that really says a lot. So I think he's going to get my second highest score behind PSH and I'm going to give him a 90. All right, Warren, what does that give us in terms of an average? That gives Willem Dafoe an 84.33, which is good enough for third, nice. which puts him between Emma Thompson and Brian Cranston. Ooh, that's good. Interesting. Wow, number three. So what's our top five? PSH, Emma Thompson, Willem Dafoe, Brian Cranston, and a tie of Mahershala and Sam Rockwell. Wow. Yeah. That's a great list. Yeah, it is. Very fair list. We're so good at everything. Good for us. A tie blows me away, too, with our scale. All right, Warren, what does he have coming down the pike here? French Dispatch, eventually. Another Wes Anderson Mm -hmm. movie, which might be the most stacked cast of them all. And then, like, six other movies that I haven't really looked into. The Card Counter, Nightmare Alley, The Northman, Inside Poor Things, and Tropico. I care to guess the Wes Anderson's the only one that's humorous, and the rest of them are, scientifically speaking, one of them, he shows his dick in it. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as he should. He needs to be in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I feel like that's why it's kind of a tragedy that that hasn't happened yet. Yeah. It's like the one thing he's missing on his uh, his resume at this point. All right, so five actors on the wheel for episode 40. Uh, big time. That means, you know, there's a social media post coming with our top 10 and probably a sad Chris O'Dowd fit photo in the bunch too. But those five actors are Tim Allen, Tilda Swinton, Anthony Mackie, Stanley Tucci, and Meg Ryan. Good list. What do we love? What do we hate? Great list. I'd say my least favorite on the list is Anthony Mackie, maybe? No, I'd say Tim, Tim Allen, honestly. Yeah. Tim Allen's such a fucking wild card. It's the Toy Stories and the Santa Claus movies. Galaxy Quest. And the cocaine and the arrest. Yeah, but this isn't, this isn't <laughs> Munson's at the nightclub. This is Munson's at the movie. <laughs> yeah. I'd agree with Warren. I love Home Improvement, man. But I'm going to do a season-by-season breakdown of Home Improvement. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't done a TV show since Chris O'Dowd as a featured review, so there you go. It's true. Pop that in. I did just watch rewatch Kate and Leopold with Meg Ryan the other day while I was in the hotel because it was the only thing that was remotely watchable that was on. Is that Hugh Jackman? It is yep. with Natasha Leone. James, you don't want to do your Italian friend? No, nah, dude, I love Tucci. Yeah, absolutely. Tucci's great. Yeah. Someone can watch that first movie that he's in, uh, Preetzi's Honor. Oh, yeah. yeah. I already watched Good luck Preetzi finding him. <laughs> oh, no. Good luck, Good luck finding him. Yeah. Tilda's great. Too. He's also in Beethoven, people forget. I want to do Tilda just because she's eccentric as hell and been in some awesome movies. She is. She's been in some really good movies. I could definitely rewatch Snowpiercer, that's for sure. She's getting a lot of stuff. My only knock on Anthony Mackie is he's young. And everyone else has like way longer careers. And for him, it's like, hey, maybe Captain America will be good. I wouldn't mind an eight mile rewatch. It's been a while. Yeah, man. He's Papa Doc. Well, 
we do not decide, the wheel decides, and we'll see what episode 40 brings us. This is normally where we give our guest a plug. Dan is off somewhere doing summer camp things and can't be here, but I'm sure he would say something like, can't wait to be back with you guys in like five episodes for my scheduled appearance as a guest. Yeah, Dan, you're the best, man. Dan. He, you know what? He didn't want to steal the stage. That's what it was about. He just he wanted to make sure we, we had a time to contribute. He's a good man. Selfless guy, I'll tell you. All right, next podcast hits on July 15th. Our featured guest is uh, Jeff of the From First to Last podcast. Jeff will be our first Australian guest. He has got a heavy Australian accent. He will be chatting with us early in the morning. He's a teacher, so he's like, this is perfect. I'm just going to... You guys doing it at night? I'll be first thing in the morning with my coffee, doing some Munsons at the movie. So I'm excited to have Jeff on. That's going to be a good time. Jeff, you're only here because we need you to help us get into the Australian market, <laughs> but we'll, we'll figure that out as we get there. But good dude. We'll have a good time. Whoever the wheel decides. As always, you can find us on Twitter, Munsons at Movies. You can find us on the gram at Munsons at the Movies. You can email us, Munsons at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts from Willem? Well... Looks like I finally ran into someone that likes to play as rough as I do. You're dumb. Be you dumb if you think you can pull this off. Munson's out. <sighs> All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. Doctor, shall we?